0: Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com.
1: And I'm Andy Nelson from TheNextReal.com.
0: And folks, today we've had our hiatus episodes, we've talked about comics, we've talked about a short, we've talked about all the things we're excited about, but today we are actually jumping right into the movie itself. We're talking about minute one, which begins with a Paramount logo and it ends with Jane Foster typing away. Andy, what... What kind of jumps out at you from this minute? What would you most notice?
1: Uh, well, one, I mean, we're looking at uh, uh, I think at least half of this is probably just credits. I it's kind of interesting now looking back on this and going, "Oh yeah, this was back when Paramount was involved in all of this." Yep. So that was kind of a funny thing to notice. And then I think what the other thing that I notice is just how focused this story is on earth and science right out yeah. of the gate. And it was kind of um I don't know, it, it was it was nice to kind of remember and I suppose You know, going all the way back to Iron Man episode one, we talk about earning your wizards. And I think that certainly makes sense here. Like, we're starting grounded on Earth in science before we get into all the the magic and craziness.
0: I think that's another thing that really grabbed me as well. We'll get to it when we we hit that part of the minute. But for me, what that says from the very beginning is this is a movie about humans starting to understand about the world of Thor. It's not just going to drop us right into Asgard. And I I really appreciate that. I think it's going to really... It sets the framework for a lot of what we're going to discuss. And so we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about uh, a number of different things as part of this minute. But I know one of the things I'm most excited about is that this is going to be a conversation. It's not just you and I talking, Andy. It's uh, all the fans are going to have a chance to kind of join in and share their thoughts. Tell them about the Discord. Do they get to do that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, If you want to jump into the conversation with us about Thor and the minutes that we are discussing this week, we have a growing group of Marvel fans just waiting to chat with you over in our Discord server. If you just head to truestory.fm slash Marvel Movie Minute, you can click on the Discord link and it'll get you set up. We can't wait to chat with you over there.
0: I'm someone who's kind of new to the network. It's been a lot of fun getting to hear people's thoughts on Iron Man and see that discussion go. And I'm just really excited to see that happen here with Thor. So, like you said, we get through, we see the Paramount logo. Uh, I'd forgotten entirely that Paramount was ever involved, (laughs) which was kind of fun. And the first thing that hit me was it reminded me that we didn't always have this Marvel logo that was based in the movies. And it's funny. I haven't thought about this in years, but I, I feel like I missed. Cause what I'm talking about is that we get the Marvel logo, but it's all the the flipping pages, noises from the comics. And, I feel like I kind of missed this, this that it's so grounding us, remembering us that this is a story about comic book characters.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I think it's in the name of this particular logo that they had. Uh, it's called their flipbook logo. Um, mm-hmm. Imaginary Forces created it back in 2002, which I, I think was one of the Spider Man. Uh, releases when this logo was first introduced and and what i i've always wondered as i watched this so many times i wonder if they change images out periodically as it goes through yeah. it. apparently they don't i guess what they did is they picked like 120 different images that they said quote were universal and not specific to one character and then they just kind of created this flipbook but uh, but i love the way that it feels and it flows and it's got the words on the screen periodically sometimes and it builds into that that marvel uh verbiage and i it's i don't know i've always loved the logo i think you're right there's something really um kind of magical about the fact that it grounds it in the comic books that, that they yeah. were doing
0: the, the new one is fun and of course they've done some great things like the the tribute to chadwick boseman they did for at least one of the movies and a tribute to stan lee but I, I i definitely miss that yeah yeah so i mean those things take up about 30 seconds in a movie uh it, it is funny like watching this I don't think of this as a slow movie, but when I realized like nothing happens really until 45 seconds or so into the movie, it definitely was a bit of a surprise to me.
1: But <laughs> yeah, well, but welcome I guess, I mean, to the opening minutes of a movie in the <laughs> in the movie's by minute style, my friend.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're gonna uh, see a whole bunch of details that just go right over your head. Yeah. But so, so the first thing we do see is that on screen text that says, uh, "Forgive my pronunciation. I hope I'm getting this right." Uh, Puente Antiguo, New Mexico. Right. Uh, which I believe you you looked up and that that. That word translates as Old Bridge, correct?
1: Yeah, Puente Antiguo is Old Bridge, and it was an interesting decision that they had on their part of actually naming this small town that we're going to be spending a lot of time in this film, Puente Antiguo, because they wanted an idea of this little town being a reflection of Asgard and Old Bridge, right. kind of tying into the whole idea of the Rainbow Bridge and and the uh, the Bifrost and, and mm-hmm. that whole thing. We're going to be talking about I have a feeling the connections between kind of like this town and those elements and Asgard um, a lot over the course of this
0: movie. Listeners who haven't heard me on my other podcast should know I have a great habit of taking some tiny detail and thinking of all the things that makes me think and then assuming the filmmaker must have had all those things intentional. So everything I'm about to say might be completely running with it, but I think bridges have so much meaning in this movie. I mean, because... This, this, you're right, it's the Rainbow Bridge, which is such an important part of Asgard. Also, this town is now going to be the beginning of rebuilding the bridge between Midgard and Asgard, you know, sure. in terms of yeah. like, here's where the connection begins again. And in a few moments, we'll get to talking about the last time Midgard and Asgard were in contact with each other. But also, and this we're going to get into a lot more as we go further, Kenneth Branagh, the director, obviously had so much thought about the human relationships in this movie that often were not you know, the, the 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 people relationships, I should say, that often were you know that there were gaps. And I think at one point he mentions in the commentary, like an offhand comment about like this is about like Loki and Thor, like you know could there be a bridge in their relationship? The relationships with Odin, could there be a bridge there? And there isn't. Maybe I'm just reading a whole bunch into it, but I wonder if that's one other part of this idea of so much of this movie is about the bridges that aren't there, the the relationships that, that they can't quite fix in the movie. You know, that this town's also where that's going to happen.
1: I think that's a, a really a great way to look at it. And I, I certainly think that, uh, you know, in in the way that you know, filmmakers often talk about these sorts of things. I mean, they could have had, you know, many conversations <laughs> and very long conversations about exactly the point you're just making about, about the idea of a bridge being a connection between two things and, and the, the way that, uh, can these connections can be, uh, can be strengthened or destroyed. And I, I think that we're going to be seeing a lot of that over the course of this film.
0: Now, you also, I know, have, have looked into this and that the fact that it's in New Mexico is very specific, especially in tying into the comic books. Talk, talk to us a bit about that. It's funny,
1: you know, New Mexico doesn't figure into the comics so much, but, uh, J. Michael Straczynski, who wrote the, uh, the comic line for thor he took it on in uh quick,
0: quick shout out also the author and director and and showrunner for babylon five one of the most unknown but fantastic uh star trek style sci-fi shows out there sorry go on no, no, Shanda, yeah jms needs the shout out
1: absolutely so we'll i'm sure we'll be shouting a, a lot out to jms over the course of this um who actually also had a hand in writing the script uh, or i should say mm-hmm. really kind of worked developed the story for this with mark Protofsevich. Before, uh, the three screenwriters came on to actually write the screenplay. But JMS, uh, started the Thor line that he worked on in, I believe, 2008. And that Thor line, I, I think that it became prominent because of the fact that, uh, you know, he, you know, Thor still had the, the human persona of Donald Blake, but it had kind of been um, stripped from him, and it actually starts with him kind of, kind of bringing that persona back, and settling in of all places, rural Oklahoma, and hmm. and going to the town and all this sort of stuff. And he's trying to like let Thor out again because, in it, you know, it it's post Ragnarok, and I should say post a Ragnarok. There are, are a lot of Ragnaroks that happen over the course of the comic lines. Uh, but he settles. He ends up building a new Asgard. Uh, basically over Oklahoma and, and starts bringing all the Asgardians back to live there. Oh, interesting. But that, and it's a, it's a really, I, I haven't read all of it, but it's, I, I really enjoy kind of the, that thread of Thor working to rebuild um, a new Asgard here in Midgard, mm-hmm. uh, which I think speaks to kind of that whole idea that, that we'll, you know, eventually talk about with uh, Odin's comments about, um, you know, Asgard being a people, not a place by the time we get to Thor Ragnarok, the film. Um, But certainly the look that uh, JMS really kind of created with that of this God living in a very rural, flat, deserty sort of landscape. I think that's that spoke to the the writers as they were coming up with where they were going to place this particular story and decided New Mexico would probably be a great place to take it. My hunch is. Is why it's in New Mexico is because of the tax incentives, which is you know mm. why so many it's things, impossible. why so many things get filmed in New Mexico these days. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they could have written it as as Oklahoma still, but right. Uh, but I, I think New Mexico is fine, and and you know I know Brona really appreciated still having the great big open skies, which was a right. very big thing that he wanted to make sure that he had an element of as they made this film.
0: And we'll get to that in a second. I think the only other thing that to me comes up about New Mexico is. Much later in the movie, we get the scene where there's the standoff against the destroyer, the huge kind of like sentient robot thing that Loki sends. And it feels very much to me like an Old West showdown. And so I do wonder if that was also part of the thing. And Oklahoma is Old West, but I think New Mexico and Tombstone and all really evokes that. Uh, But you're right. But I, I think to me, one of the most interesting things about this level of analysis is where you look at like what do they do for story reasons, and what do they do for practical reasons? You know, I think that's, I think it's probably a little both. It's New Mexico is is Old West, and it's also cheaper. Um, (laughs) Back when Disney cared about those things, so I think today they set it wherever the heck they want. Yeah, Um, right. But but I love that you mention it, because we do then get, that's the next shot we get, is we start with this big starry sky, and then kind of go down to this one little van on Earth. And I thought, to me, one of the most interesting things is that it starts with a, a literal light in the darkness you know at first all we really see is this very very dark sky and, and at first it's kind of the light of the van and it's very dark and you can't really make it out what what' you kind of get out of that shot of like starting with the big sky and then moving down to just these three specific people in the van as we then learn
1: well i I think that especially the way the brana framed that right I mean we have this you know and it's it's very dark it's like a moonless night um, but it's a very you know, big sky that we see here and we get this very gentle tilt down to this, this van in the distance. It's not like right in front of us. I mean, it's a little bit away and it's uh, almost like stars itself, right? It has its headlights on and some, some of its kind of like side lights, which makes us think, Oh, this is some sort of a science vehicle because it has lights that aren't just on the front and back, but it's so small. And I think it puts in perspective this idea that while there is an earthbound story that we're kind of settling into here in this Puente Antiguo. At the same time, these people, you know, can be seen as as just you know a gnat in this big universe, which you know yeah. you often hear kind of this description of who we are in in our place of uh, of this universe. So
0: it reminds me of those memes you sometimes see of a picture of like all the stars in the sky and this one dot point, this arrow pointing to one little dot in the midst of it saying, you are here.
1: Exactly. You know, it's kind of
0: like showing that. And I want to share a quote from Kenneth Branagh because I think we're going to be talking a lot about uh, his thought because, you know, he was the director clearly, but it's also very clear. He wasn't just the, they bring him in two months before shooting to get an idea of this. He was a key part of the, the production of this movie from day one. And he wrote, it was an absolute gut certainty for me coming into the sort of process of pitching for the job, really. Cause he really like, he pushed for this. He wanted yeah, this, right, right? That we had to be on contemporary earth and we had to start there. We had to let the audience know that people looked and sounded like us and crucially had perhaps some of the sarcasm and cynicism. And in some cases, so, sort of scientific rigor to just check out the facts. What, what what's your kind of take on, on, on that? Uh, perspective of of Branagh's and how it fits into the, with the movie we're about to talk about
1: for somebody who's coming to this project who has done a lot of Shakespeare and who certainly has a perspective of things of like these stories of great grandeur I think that he he can see that you know Asgard is pretty big it's a it's this royal family essentially that we're following and it's like you know we need to we need to find a way to to start with you know finding that that human connection and and who how we can view step into this story. And I think that's what I really liked about the way that he approached this is saying, you know, let's, let's look at the, the human side of all of this, you know, and because even, even with the Asgardians, we're still looking at the human side of brothers and families and and parents and all that sort of thing. And I think that's the angle that he approached it with. And I, I'm, I'm glad that he, he came at it from that perspective.
0: I think it's a very conscious choice he makes to make the movie much more accessible And frankly, I think it's a big part of why the movie works for me. Uh, I I don't have your kind of uh, academic training background in cinema and things like that. So I I may be butchering these terms here. But I know that, like, you know, the point of view character of a movie is very important and it, it shifts somewhat through the movie. But I feel like if the movie had started with a point of view character of someone on Asgard, it would be very hard for me to get into it because I love this movie and I love the Asgard scenes if you're not careful, they can seem a little hokey almost, or a little just sort of like it, it just feels so kind of separate from our own world that you don't really know what's going on. But when it becomes, when the point of view care, really, I think the point of your character is Darcy more than anything else. And we will get into really in the next couple of minutes with her cynicism and the kind of like, well, sure, I want to figure out science, but I also don't want to, you know, get thrown <laughs> on a, I'm just getting college credit. I don't want to die, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and like that's what he says about the sarcasm and the cynicism. If it's just a god shows up and all the people are like, ooh, Thor, look at his pretty hair, look at his powers, you lose me. But having it be about these people who you know, I think we talked about this a bit in the in the primers and we'll talk about it more, but this movie is such a huge shift, you know. Iron Man is, is just a guy with technology. And, and I can believe that would be possible. I, the physics are, yeah. But you know, the Hulk is a guy with some technology, the Captain America, et cetera. Captain America is a later movie, but this movie is like, you're now asking me to believe in a whole bunch of stuff that's way beyond my my normal, like, you know, idea of what's possible or not. And so for the movie to be about people who are just as cynical as I am, slowly coming to believe it. I just think it was such a brilliant way to frame it.
1: You know, I think that it becomes something that people at Marvel certainly will recognize because, I mean, and I know I'm jumping way far into the future, but think about what James Gunn did with Guardians of the Galaxy. It's the exact same idea right the approach that we need to we need to start grounded with earth with somebody that we can connect with before we jump into this crazy story about all this stuff going on at the far ends of the galaxy and i just think that it's a very smart way to approach this type of story and um yeah so for me the fact that you know i i walk into the movie theater the lights go down and all of a sudden i'm in new mexico it's like huh okay that's interesting. That's interesting to me. And here I am in a in a van of some sort of science stuff going on. It's it, it's very interesting.
0: I was going to say that, like, at least because that's something I can relate to. But the honesty is I'm I'm liberal arts 100 percent. Being in a van doing science is completely that's as foreign to my world as, as Asgard. But at least <laughs> at, like New Mexico, I can understand. Right. But but at the same
1: time, you can you can look at that and go, oh, OK, science. I, I get a sense of that right. there being a grounding here. Right. Because I think yes. if anything. The, the idea of science is a very grounded element. I'm going to study what is around me uh, in a very uh, kind of intentional way where I'm looking at what's there and what's not without kind of kind of getting all poetic about it or or seeing kind of, you know, the magical sides of things.
0: And one thing I think is also really interesting is we literally don't have a single word of dialogue in this first minute. And I'm that seems mind blowing to me, but I'm sure actually it happens all the time in movies. The only thing that really speaks is the music, and it's it's orchestral music. It's um Patrick Doyle's track "Chasing the Storm," uh, an interesting note kind of here. Patrick Doyle has actually been working with Kenneth Branagh since all the way back to my my personal favorite Branagh movie, Henry V in 1989. St. Christmas Day speech, still one of the great most moving moments I've ever seen in, in cinema. And this is actually his ninth collaboration with Branagh, and I. I think there's a real magic – it, it kind of reminds me of um, – oh, God, they're going to throw me out of being a goth from high school because I can't remember. <laughs> Danny Elfman – oh, Tim, Tim Burton and Danny Elfman. You know, they're yeah. just like – you can't mm-hmm. imagine one without the other in some ways, especially Burton without Elfman. And I think it's awesome seeing that, like, I think that same level of dynamic really seems to have happened here with Brandon and Doyle where they just know what – Doyle seems to know what Branagh wants and can give it. I think that that collaboration, I think, adds so much to this movie.
1: I think there has been some grief given to the Marvel films for the lack of really strong orchestral themes, which, you know, as a fan of film score, I certainly can agree with. I, I listen to, I mean, I enjoy Ramin Djawadi. I enjoy what he did with Iron Man. I do think that he came up with a, at least a strong kind of, uh, you know, electric guitar kind of, you know, short theme for who Iron Man is that is easy to play and reference. Oh, that's Iron Man. Incredible Hulk, I think there were some interesting elements in that film, too, and Iron Man 2. But by the time we get to Patrick Doyle, I hear that name, and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to get some strong orchestral pieces in this that give me a sense of this character and everything. And that certainly is something that we will find over the course of this film, that there are some some great kind of big themes that make me feel like I have a sense of Asgard and of Thor.
0: Especially because for me, I, I think that critique of Marvel is fairly legit. But I think when you're just starting out, establishing the MCU, establishing some new things, having the orchestral music being powerful in part because you don't always notice it, I don't think is a terrible choice. I think once we get to the 10th or 15th Marvel movie and they're still doing those kind of things, then I'm like, you know, let's, let's, let's maybe branch out a bit. Let's maybe like, uh, you know, Captain Marvel is very noticeable to me and that is like lyrical music. Same with Guardians of the Galaxy for that reason. But that's, I, I'm going to be top uh, uh, tangent king here. We're going to go off on a lot of tangents. We'll try to kind of, Will the, I'll say back. Besides the music, we also hear a lot of background noise in the scene. What what are the things that kind of jumped out at you about the other? the parts of new mexico that are speaking when we don't have any actual dialogue
1: well yeah i mean once we kind of really settle in on this location it really is kind of night noises right we hear crickets it sounds like there might be some sort of a cicada or something else that's kind of doing its little noise uh there's a few other things that kind of do soft gentle chirps but really like as we tilt down to the van and we settle on the van we can if we listen really carefully you can hear kind of the engine is running so we know it's not just sitting out here in the dark off it's actually kind of running for some particular reason perhaps because of equipment i don't know uh there and then we also start hearing like there's a little i don't know some sort of a computer noise that we hear that that once we hear that we kind of cut into the van but yeah it's just it's very much kind of like night noises
0: and i think it just kind of helps to settle again like these people are studying the stars and i grew up in new york city there's not a lot of astronomy to be done in New York City because there's just (laughs) way too much light. And you think about it, like if they're going to go study something way out in the stars, you know, not just look at Mars, this is where they go. They go to the place where all it is is night noise because there's no people around. There's no cars around. I think just... Just little details like that. Well,
1: and it's funny that they identify this as Puente Antigua, because we're clearly not in the town. Like, we we might be near the town, but we're, like, out in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, it is, like, le- legit, like, desert, and that's all we're in at this particular location.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe it's the name of the county. Yeah, you know, right. Like that, the town seat. <laughs> now, something else I know that... um Branagh pointed out in the commentary track, which by the way, if you get a hand, uh, a hold on, is very well worth listening to. We're gonna reference it a lot, and I think really gives some great insight. But he talks about Dutch angles and shooting this with Dutch angles because it really reminds him of the comic books that he read. And we'll get into the fact that is a comic book fan. That that blew my mind. <laughs> I, but I'll be honest, I, I listened to that. And the first thing I had to do was go Google, you know, Wikipedia Dutch angles. I'm not a film person. You are. What's a Dutch angle? What does that mean in terms of how, what, what we're seeing on film and what Brando was trying to do?
1: A Dutch angle is really like when you frame the shot. I mean, normally, if you if you position a camera, you're going to kind of uh, balance the the frame of it so that the the, you know, the frame is is exactly kind of parallel to the ground that you're looking at. So when you see the frame, the ground looks basically as flat as perhaps the bottom of edge of the frame. And when you do a Dutch angle, you're actually purposefully tilting the camera one way or the other so that everything is off kilter. And so if you look in the background of any particular shot of the characters, wherever you see a line that should be a horizontal line, like you know, parallel to the the flat surface of the ground, um, it will be at a big angle kind of tilted up off to one side or the other. And so that's kind of what a Dutch angle is. And and it's definitely something that, you know, it has its popularity here and there in the world of, of filmmaking in general. Um, it's it but it's not often as used as much as Brada certainly uses it in this film. And I mean, right out of the gate, we we start seeing it. Uh, when we jump into the van here,
0: I'm glad we have that explanation because there there's some scenes later on in the in the movie where they're coming to rescue Thor that definitely use that to an extreme example. And I and I noted like the angles here what they mean. I hadn't connected that to the Dutch angle thing, so that's that's something to be a great thing to look at. Yeah, right. Now, obviously, this movie is pretty much kind of set on its own, but we know that this movie doesn't just uh, happen in a vacuum. And when Iron Man happens. The end is Nick Fury coming to tell him about the Avengers initiative, but it doesn't actually set up Hulk in any way. And then Hulk doesn't really kind of set up Iron Man 2 in any way. But then the end of Iron Man 2, we literally get like that shot in the end credits of the hammer has landed on Earth. We know that Thor is coming. right? So this is kind of a fun movie. In that. This is the first one where it's really directly tied into, because I think when they made this movie, it was the first time they really knew like Iron Man and Hulk were successes. We, we can do this big project we have. What house is happening in the MCU at the time this happens? Because the the timing of this, I think, is pretty important.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, t- and to your point, I think part of the reason for all of that is, is because, you know, The Incredible Hulk was tied into Universal, not Paramount. And so right. they couldn't put those direct things. So this literally is the first, second film that has happened after one that immediately preceded it that came from the same place. And so to that end, they were able to create that lead-in as you discussed like kind of that hammer falling and, and then of course because you know they love going back and, and retrofitting all of this into to be happening in the same time because somebody needed to build a, a schedule for all of this and, and when it all happened and all of this they decided what we're what we're seeing here is happening in late may 2010 and all of what we're seeing in iron man 2 and The Incredible Hulk, which you've already heard Kyle and Rob on the last two seasons talking about how this is all happening at the same time. Now we're finally in Thor, and we're continuing this third story that's happening during the exact same window of time. What's immediately preceded this is May 29th, 2010, Shield had began monitoring Bruce Banner, Dane Foster, and Tony Stark, and this is Tony Stark's birthday. He and Rhodey nearly blew his house up. The next day, May 30th, 2010, Jane, who had been seeing things in the New Mexico desert, she contacts Eric Selvig about the disturbances and he flies out to New Mexico to help her. It so happens that her message is intercepted by S.H.I.E.L.D. Meanwhile, in Asgard, this is also Thor's coronation and then subsequently his attack on Jotunheim. We're going to see more of that. And we don't necessarily know what all is happening with that because we're currently on May 31st, 2010. And right now we're with Jane, Eric, and Darcy. They're going out to the deserts to monitor these disturbances. Obviously, as we'll find out, it's the same day Thor gets cast out of Asgard. And interestingly, in uh, as far as uh, Bruce Banner is concerned, this is when he arrives at Culver University looking for Betty. Meanwhile, over in New York, uh, the Battle at the Stark Expo is happening, and as we have talked about on our hiatus episode, this is also the day that there is a robbery that takes place at the Roxanne gas station in New Mexico, which Coulson prevents. Busy, busy, busy time.
0: And I love all that, especially, I, I'm going to try not doing this too much, but but now that like the, the, the Babylon 5 door has been open, <laughs> I need to kind of step through it every now and then, because I know we want to make these connections. I know that JMS is not responsible for this level of deep continuity, as we would say over on uh, um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, the uh, part of the podcast network I'm part of. Um, but but clearly, his fingerprints, I think, are involved in this. And I, I bring that up because, for those who haven't seen it, Babylon 5 is—it was really one of the first TV shows at a time when everything was still very episodic, where when, when JMS sat down to start writing episode one— he knew exactly where the last episode of season five was going to end. And it didn't all work out perfectly, but it was really a kind of revolutionary thing in terms of like having all these connections made from episode to episode, season to season, of all the ways the pieces were going to fit together. And so I don't know if he helped inspire that or if he just loved it because of his background in it. But knowing that JMS was part of what I think of as one of the other great examples of, even though sometimes it doesn't all fit together, or they say, oh, it's time travel, it doesn't matter. Um, Knowing that, like, he's connected to the MCU, which is also where they try to have all these pieces fit together, uh, especially in the ways you just talked about of this one incredible three-day period where so much happens, uh, it it just makes my Babylon uh, 5 heart so happy, (laughs) knowing those connections.
1: (laughs) I love that. I love that it's another sort of, like, this this epic storytelling style where you have a... a an end game. See how I see what I did there. You have an end there game with there what you're go. trying to do uh, over the course of multiple, multiple stories. That's, uh, that's pretty cool.
0: Especially because as we'll get into, I feel like one of the main characters of this is shield in some ways, and that this movie, we'll talk more about it later. This movie is where shield stops being kind of Colson being the bumbling guy who Tony's making fun of, but Shield really starts to have some power and even a little bit of menace. So I, I'm really looking forward to getting into that. We've gone on a bit. I kind of feel like once we have talked for um, 30 times longer than the period of time of the movie we're discussing, that maybe it's about time to start (laughs) wrapping it up. Uh, But are there any other kind of last things that you wanted to get into about this that we haven't touched on yet?
1: Uh, The only other thing which we can certainly kind of continue in the conversation next time is, you know, once we're in the van, we do get a little flash of the computer screen that Jane is working on, and it shows the Van Allen belts. Uh, This is the radiation belt. Uh, It's a zone of energetic charged particles around the Earth, most of which uh, originate in the solar wind, named after James Van Allen, who discovered them. Uh, it's it's obviously something in relation to what she's studying. So uh, we'll we'll talk more about that uh, as we jump into the next minute.
0: Yeah, I love that you mentioned that because it's, as we'll talk about, Brandon really cared about the real science. He did want to, as much as possible, make this something that could fit into the science of our day. You know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of, you know, uh, there's a lot of leaps you got to make, but he wanted it to be rounded somewhat. And I, and I love that other, just little thing I wanted to mention, cause it's just kind of a fun thing. We talked about how the Paramount logo is um, still featured in this. Paramount is not obviously a partner with uh, Marvel for a long time, but I think, is that because at that point, uh, Paramount was the ones who owned Marvel and that's who Disney bought Marvel from?
1: Uh, no, they didn't own it, but they had a distribution deal that they had worked out with Marvel entertainment to kind of distribute these films. And so they had, cause I think Disney bought, Marvel in 09. So at this point, they were just still releasing it with Paramount. And it wouldn't be, I think, until uh, a few more years, a few more films before the Paramount logo right. will end up disappearing because it's still I mean, it's still on the Avengers. I, I, I think by the time we get into phase two, that's when we'll start looking at some some different logos in there.
0: Definitely. And, and just other cool things, Paramount is actually one of the, it's the oldest surviving Hollywood film logo. Yeah. Uh, in uh, 2011, it gets changed for their 100th anniversary, but that hadn't happened yet. And it has 22 stars. Andy, do you know why it has 22 stars?
1: You know, I've heard about this, about the the fact that it relates to, I, I don't know if it was the number of, tw- number of stars that they had contracted at the time, I believe. But oh, uh, something cool. like that. Yeah. It was 22 stars for of 22 stars that they were working with.
0: <laughs> you know, it's not enough for Thor trivia. We're going to give you science trivia. We're going to give you paramount trivia. We're going to get into the trivia of wigs. When we talk about Thor's wig, that is, um, people have some questions about that, but, but you know, all that's going to come. So thank you so much for kind of tuning in. Really excited to do this. Really excited to have your support going all the way. And I just want to say, have a good day
1: until next time. True believers. True believers.